While you're standing, if you can grab your Bibles and turn to Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily. In Ephrata, also be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like that house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her consumption, conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nason. Nason fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and your loving kindness. We thank you for the privilege of opening up your word together this morning. And we ask, O oh God, that your spirit would teach us and empower your truth in our lives. Help us, O oh God, to fix all of our attention on your holy word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated, church. In 1876, the president of Western Union, William Orton, dismissed telephones as a toy when Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell him the patent for $100,000. Orton wrote an internal memo stating, quote, the idea is idiotic on the face of it. Furthermore, why would any person want to use this ungainly and impractical device when he can send a messenger to the telegraph office and have a clear written message sent to anyone in any large city in the United States, end quote. Well, we advance a few years later in 1903, the president of Michigan Savings Bank 
warned Henry Ford's lawyer, Horace Rackham, to protect his money. He advised, quote, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad, end quote. Then on to 1926, Lee DeForest, inventor of the cathode ray tube, said, quote, theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which we should waste little time dreaming about, end quote. On to 1943. Thomas J. Watson, chairman of the board of IBM, said this, quote, I think there is a world market for about five computers, end quote. 1962, an unnamed music recording expert said, quote, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out, end quote. Then fast forward to 2007. Then CEO of Microsoft, Steve Ballmer said, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance, end quote. <laughs> we can go on and on about people trying to guess about the future, making all sorts of guesses. But who can know, the certain, or who can know for certain what happens in the future, or what the future holds? Well, beloved, you know that answer, right? Only God and as we will see this morning, it's not simply that God knows the future, he directs the future. He is orchestrating, amen, wherever that came from, he is orchestrating every detail of every day according to the purposes of his will. He accomplishes his purposes, both in the present and in the future. And his purposes are for his glory and for his people's good. So this morning we turn to the last chapter of Ruth in this fourth part at looking specifically at the book of Ruth and seeing the providence of God. This story, roughly a 3,000-year-old story that God has preserved for us, it has been said that much like the, the Venus de Milo is to sculptures and the Mona Lisa is to paintings, that Ruth is to literature. And though we see three main characters throughout the story, we see Naomi and we see Ruth and we see Boaz, the book of Ruth is about God. It's about his loyal love. It's about his unfaithful kindness. And above all, it's about his providence. Providence, that is the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world, that God is actively involved in every detail. Chris read to us this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 11, we read that everything is according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. We read in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, God says, I will accomplish all my purpose. He is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God is in control of all things. He works out all things according to his will. Which means, as we've seen in, in past weeks, there is no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. God always accomplishes his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So let's walk through chapter 4. Hopefully you still have Ruth chapter 4 open on your laps. Let's walk through it together and then we'll focus our attention on the big picture. So looking back in the opening verses... Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. So let, let's put this back in context. Hopefully you've been with us through the study and perhaps some of you were not here last week, but what has just taken place previous to this in chapter 3 
is Ruth has gone to the threshing floor and she has basically made a, a, a proposal to Boaz to marry her, that he is a redeemer. And he tells her, I, I will do that. But there's somebody else that's a closer relative. And so this here is only hours have passed between that interaction on the threshing floor. It is now morning. If you recall, just look back at what I just spoke of in chapter 3. In verse 11, you'll see that Boaz promises that he'll do all that she asks. But then in verse 12 is when he gives the news that there is another who has right of first refusal. He told her that there is somebody else who has first rights. That he's going to go in the morning and see if he could find that individual. And now in context, it is morning. And Boaz has gone up to the town gate. And the town gate is, is a place where, where meetings take place, where official transactions, legal business would be held at the city gate. It's where also people would pass through when they came and went from the city, from the town. So Boaz is now sitting at the gate to see if he could find the Redeemer. Remember, because in order for him to go forward with Naomi's plan that was sent through Ruth to Boaz, first this other Redeemer must say he declines and is not going to redeem her. And so look at verse 1. We see in verse 1, And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Those of you that have been with us through the study, do you remember in chapter 2 when Ruth went out to glean in the fields and it happened that she came to the field of Boaz? And this is another one of those times where the narrator is using language to point us to something going on behind the scenes, that God is orchestrating everything. It's not like, wow, like, like what good luck the Boaz has right there, that right at the exact time the Redeemer actually walks by. I mean, what would be the odds? But maybe us, some of us would think circumstance and, you know, by chance. This is not by chance. God is in every detail and has Boaz at the right place at the right time. And when Boaz sees his other relative, we read in our English Bibles that Boaz says, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Well, that's what we read in our English Bibles that he says, friend. But when we look this up in the Hebrew, it is not the equivalent of friend. There actually is no equivalent of what he actually says. Boaz actually calls him two rhyming and meaningless words. The, the closest that we would have in English is Mr. So-and-so. He says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come over here. Now, it's interesting that the narrator uses this term. Mr. So-and-so. I mean, surely this man had a name. I mean, we know Boaz's name, but the narrator intentionally omits the other relative's name and simply refers to him as Mr. So-and-so. We'll get to more on that in a bit. And so the last thing we see here in verse 2 is that Boaz gets 10 elders from the town to sit down to be witnesses to what is about to transpire. Will this other relative redeem Ruth, or will it be Boaz? Look back at your Bibles with me in, in verse 3. We read, And then he, being Boaz, said to the Redeemer, to, to Mr. So-and-so, he said, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so here, Boaz, this guy has no idea any of this. So Boaz is telling him that Naomi is selling Elimelech's land. We can infer that it's to raise, funny, uh, raise money so she could take care of herself. But if a redeemer purchase, purchases that land, it stays in the family and it's passed down to Naomi's descendants. And so we continue to get the context here is what is being said. Look at verse 4. Boaz continues to speak. And he says in verse 4, So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. If there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And Mr. So-and-so said, I will redeem it. Now, 
it, it, for those of you that are moviegoers and you're, you're sitting and you're going through the, the plot and you get to the climax and this is it. This is what should happen is Ruth and Boaz should get married. And yet you have this other individual who at this point is supposed to say no. But instead his words are, I will redeem it. It's one of those in the movie theaters, the gas. I hear you hear me. That's <gasps> not what was supposed to happen. It's not going according to the plan. It's like a gut punch. What is happening? This Mr. So-and-so is supposed to be saying no. And as we'll see, Mr. So-and-so is all about business and not about mercy. It appears by what happens next that he knew that Naomi had no living sons so that he would be able to keep the property forever. So look what he finds out. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, this now changes everything. Mr. So-and-so was thinking about, hey, here's some land. I can give some money and I can have it forever. But he wasn't thinking about Ruth. Maybe he thought, Naomi, I know she's childless. And so if I gave her some money, there's no one else that will inherit that land that it will go back to. It'll be his. He's a businessman. He's thinking, sure, I'll, I'll redeem it. But now he hears about Ruth. And he hears about needing to perpetuate the name. And he finds this obligation to marry Ruth is too much. It's too costly. And his tune changes very quickly. In verse 6, we read, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Well, now he realized there's a cost to redeeming Ruth, a cost that he was unwilling to pay. And from his response, we can infer that he was unwilling to let his current possessions to be split between his existing children and any potential children that would come from Ruth. Thus, he passes on his right of redemption. He says, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I want to ask you a question here. Do you think God was surprised at this point? I mean, if we were watching this as a movie and there was that gasp in the movie theater when he said, I'll redeem it, we go, oh. God didn't do that. He didn't gasp. He didn't go, oh my, I hadn't planned for this. He was actually orchestrating all of those things together. Here this man says, I'll pass. And perhaps this is why the narrator chose to keep him nameless. He is just another number, another person who is more focused on their own desires than on God's desires, another person erased from any importance in history. Mr. So-and-so wanted to do everything he could to establish his future, and instead he is forgotten. So with his refusal to redeem Ruth, a formal custom had to take place. Now, I want you to remember, we are like 3,000 years removed from this custom and removed completely from this culture. And so what is about to take place seems a bit bizarre to us. Look at verse, starting in verse 7. It says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Okay, so first thing, apparently we see there's a custom of a sandal being given. Now, 
today if we had some kind of deal, I, I don't want your sandal. <laughs> you definitely don't want my sandal. But this was the custom of the day. It was a transaction. It was like giving a receipt or, or signing the contract. And this is what takes place. It makes this transaction complete. Mr. So-and-so has officially given up his right to redeem Elimelech's land and also to redeem Ruth. And he did that when he drew off his sandal and said to Boaz, buy it yourself. Boaz confirms that in front of 10 witnesses, he has elders from the town that are sitting there and confirms in front of all of them that he is going to redeem all of Limelech's possessions and that he plans to marry Ruth and take her as a wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. This man, Boaz, from the moment we have seen him, when he came on the scene in chapter 2, has continued to be a man who fears God. He continues to be a man who is a worthy man. He is a man who continues to walk humbly in integrity and demonstrates mercy. And here he takes Ruth to be his wife. We see in verse 11 that all the people at the gate, including the elders, that the elders then come and they pronounce a blessing of fertility on Ruth. Look with me in your Bibles, starting in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by his young women. Now, Perez, for those of you, that's my wife's mother's maiden name, but not that way, not Hebrew. Somebody say, does he know it's a Spanish word? It's Hebrew here? <laughs> now, I could use some Spanish lessons later, but this is not for this. This is Hebrew. But the blessing, the prayer that we see here, it, it is a... a Prayer that's guided by the Lord. I mean, here we are 3,000 years later, and the lives of Ruth and Boaz are still spoken about today. And as we will see, so are the names of their descendants. The elders' blessing here, their blessing look backward as well as looking forward. The themes of blessing, of names, of offspring, of building the house of Israel— go all the way back to God's promise to Abraham to have a great name and a great nation that would come from his offspring. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that all peoples on the earth would find a blessing for themselves in him. And now here we see Ruth as a Gentile convert is a part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And so picking back up in verse 13, we see that Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. I will not repeat how I misspoke that earlier. <laughs> we have little kids among us, but uh, yes. Conception, and she bore a son. Now, if you'll recall, she was in Moab, married to her husband Malon, she being Ruth, and for 10 years she could not have children. She bore no children. And much like the prayer about Rachel and Leah, whom the scripture says for each of them, that it was God that opened their wombs, that God now does the same with Ruth. Ten years in Moab with Malon, no kids. But now the blessing comes from God. What does that mean? It means this, that life is a gift. We can't simply say that it is science. Life's a gift. It is the Lord who gives life. And it is the Lord who gave Ruth conception and blessed her with a son. 
And we see starting in verse 14 that the woman begins to, the women begin to speak about Naomi being blessed. Now, before we read about this blessing of Naomi, let's remember the heartache that Naomi has already gone through. Remember the heartache back in chapter 1 as she looks to return to Bethlehem. If you would, just turn in your Bibles a couple pages to the left to Ruth chapter 1. So before we get to the blessing, we'll see the heartache. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And then reading to the end of chapter 1, we read, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, that being Ruth and Naomi. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Do you understand what's being stirred inside of Naomi at this part? She has lost husband. She has lost sons. She has seen one daughter-in-law do as she asked her to do to turn back to her father's house. She feels like God is against her. She's been abandoned. And she says, don't call me, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. Call me Mara. Call me bitter one. This is where she was at. And now fast forward to chapter 4. Things have changed. God has not stopped working in every single detail in her life. And then we see the blessing back in chapter 4, verse 14 and verse 15. Flip over chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. These women in this town, they remind Naomi of God's loyal love, of his faithful kindness, that God has sent a redeemer in the son who is born to Ruth, that Obed will take care of Naomi in her old age. The women describe the measure of Ruth's love toward Naomi, that she is more to Naomi than seven sons. She's more complete. The love, the demonstration of love from Ruth to her mother-in-law is more precious, more valuable, more comforting than the perfect amount of sons could be to Naomi. This is the way that God was using Ruth in Naomi's life. And then in verse 16 we read, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood came, or excuse me, the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. That's a great name. It means servant. It means worshiper. This is Obed. Now, this was not a normal custom for the women of the town to come and name a child. There is something special going on here that they would have seen the transformation in Naomi and they would have seen God's faithfulness to Naomi. And they name the boy Obed. They also say that this is Naomi's son. Now, for those of you that have fallen along, you say, well, didn't Ruth just conceive and give birth to him? How is this Naomi's son? Well, one possible answer for this is since both of Elimelech's sons had died, though Ruth was the daughter-in-law, her firstborn would take the place as one of Elimelech's offspring to carry on his name. And thus, Obed is referred to by the women in town as Naomi's son. Naomi has gone from empty, as we just saw in chapter 1, to full at the close of this book. She has gone from sorrow to joy. 
She has gone from thinking that God had abandoned her to fully knowing God's loyal love and his faithful kindness that it continues to be extended to her. And so we can pause for a moment and we can reflect on the providence of God. God has never left her in this entire story. God was always with her. And God never leaves us. And he is always with us. And though there may be times that our feelings cause us to question it, God is always working to accomplish his purpose for his glory and for his people's good. I mean, let's think about another example that was before Naomi's experience. Think of Joseph's experience. Those of you who know of Joseph, surely he did not feel that God was for him when his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. I mean, surely he didn't feel that God was for him when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him and he was thrown into prison. And surely he did not feel that God was for him when others made a promise to remember him, but all had forgotten him. But what was Joseph able to tell his brothers when God used him to save his people from famine? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Church, there was no way, no way that Joseph would have known all that God was doing when he was going through all that trouble. There's no way. And there's no way that Naomi would have known all that God was doing when she was going through all that trouble. And for that matter, there is no way that you could know every detail of what God is doing when you go through all of your troubles. But here is the glorious truth. It's the glorious truth that God presents to us in this book of Ruth, that God is actively working to accomplish his purposes in your life, in my life, in our lives, in the life of this church. That, beloved, you are never alone. You're never forsaken. That God is always with you and working to accomplish his purpose. I mean, let's just take, for example, the life of this church. Over the last two years, it's been a challenging time for this church. When the Lord called beloved Pastor John home, things felt different. And things were different. I'm sure some of you might have questioned God. What is God doing? What is happening? You're wondering, is Christ still caring for his church, his church here at Pacific Hope? And perhaps like Naomi, the pleasant one, you felt more like Mara, the bitter one. You grieved the loss of your beloved pastor, and you didn't like change and more change, and more change, and more change. What the book of Ruth reminds us about is that God is always working on behalf of his people. He is accomplishing all of his purposes. He faithfully sustains us, and he provides for us. The book of Ruth reminds us of God's hesed, his, his loyal love, his faithful kindness. And so throughout the change over the past two years, God has remained faithful. His love and his kindness towards you is unwavering. Our chief shepherd, Jesus, is still the head of this church. He will never leave us nor forsake us. God is working. He is working with us, and he's working out the, through the pains and the sorrows of the past and the present. And he's working for his purposes and for our good. And so we're not to question God. Instead, we're to 
trust God. We're to know his character, that he is a good God, and that he is for his people. That he is the God who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. And that his will is perfect. And that his love is perfect. And his care for his people is perfect. Church, our God is for us. And he's working all things out for our good. And so may our hearts be strengthened. May our fellowship be sweetened. May our love for Christ and one another be abundant so that our joy might be full. Looking back at Naomi, who in chapter 1 was empty. She had endured loss, the loss of a husband, the loss of two sons, the loss of provision and protection. But now in chapter 4, she has continued to experience God's love and kindness through Ruth. So much so that Ruth is more to her than seven sons. And not just that, but now Naomi has Obed, someone to carry on the family line, someone who one day will act as her redeemer and care for her. Was God working behind the details? Oh, surely he was. He's working in every single detail of Naomi's life. But he was working out things far beyond Naomi and far beyond Ruth, and far beyond Boaz. Return with me to the end of how this book closes. Starting in verse 17, we read, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nason. Nason fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. <laughs> this book of, of Ruth is an incredible reminder of God's providence in all things that he most certainly cares for his people. The message of the book is, is one of reassurance, that when we're tempted, like Naomi, to feel like God has abandoned us, he is nevertheless still in control and still actively working in every detail for his purposes. This book of Ruth encourages us not to panic, not to panic during dark times when it feels as though God doesn't care not to panic during dark times when we feel like we've been abandoned, but instead to wait expectantly and to keep faith in the Lord. I mean, thinking about Boaz, if a mere human could love an outcast, could redeem her and bring her into fellowship with himself, God could love all the outcasts of the world redeem them, and bring them into fellowship with himself. I mean, look back at this genealogy that's listed at the close of chapter 4. God surely was working in every detail. Ruth, at the beginning of the story, she is barren, and then she becomes widowed, and she would become the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. She couldn't have written that story. Not a chance. But it gets even better than that. I mean, how often when you get to a genealogy in Scripture, do you just go, eh, next page. That's a lot of names. And you just keep going. And a lot of names that, you know, I'm not going to pronounce right, so you just keep going. Well, some of the included genealogies in the Bible help us understand that the story of Ruth points forward to David and David points forward to Jesus. If you're a note-taker, this same genealogy that's listed here in Ruth chapter 4 is also in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. But I want to bring our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke's gospel, where we learn that an angel Gabriel comes and speaks to a woman named Mary. If you would, turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 26 through 33. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. See, as the book of Ruth comes to a close, we see it begins to point all the way to David. But David points all the way to Christ. To Jesus' kingdom that will never end. And then staying there in in Luke, excuse me, that was Ruth and Luke together. I don't know what came out there, but that was weird. Staying there in Luke, in chapter 3, we get another genealogy. We go through the genealogy of Jesus. And in verses 31 and 32, we see what we just read in Ruth, that it was David who was son of Jesse, son of Obed, and was son of Boaz. And so not only was God working behind the scenes of all that was going on in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz's life to provide for Naomi and for Ruth. He was working behind the scenes on bringing forth the greatest king of Israel in David. And God was accomplishing all his purposes in going further in bringing forth the king of kings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're in Luke. Let's go back to Matthew. How the New Testament begins. So as the New Testament goes from Malachi and it flips over to the New Testament, from the Old Testament Malachi to the New Testament in Matthew, Matthew begins with a genealogy, which don't raise your hand, but how many of us just skim over? Like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yep, keep going. Well, now that Ruth ends with this such an important part of looking to David, who will look forward and point to Christ, look at the genealogy as it begins in chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nason, and Nason the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Skip down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Church, it's so important to note that God, in working out his purposes in sending Jesus, that he used many different people from different walks of life. You know, it's interesting in this genealogy of Jesus that Matthew records That he includes in verses 3 and 5, you look there, he includes three foreign women by name. He doesn't include any other of of, of who was the mothers except we see these three. We also see later the, the wife of Uriah is also listed. But we see these three, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And it would be the inclusion of these women that foreshadowed God's inclusion of Gentiles in the work of God's greater son, of David's greater son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, little Old Testament history. Do you remember Tamar? You could do your homework later and 
look to Genesis chapter 38. But she was a widow and she was mistreated as the daughter-in-law of Judah, who didn't give his third son to her to perpetuate the name of her first husband. And after Judah had become a widower, Tamar posed as a prostitute and seduced Judah, and they bore twins. They were Perez and Zerah. And Judah would later declare that Tamar was more righteous than he because he had refused to fulfill his responsibility and give her his third son. Again, you can read all those details in Genesis 38. There's a lot more graphic details. From Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, we also learn a bit more about Boaz because Boaz's mother is listed there. And Boaz's mother is listed as Rahab. If you remember Rahab, she didn't play the role of a prostitute. She was actually a prostitute. If you recall, she was a Canaanite prostitute who aided the Israelite spies in Jericho. And as a result of her belief in God, in the God of Israel, she and her family were spared during Joshua's conquest of Jericho. Again, Rahab could be included in this genealogy. That she is a woman that is to be praised. She is a woman that is praised in the New Testament of her faith and her actions. We see that in Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2. And her inclusion, again, is perhaps telling us of the grace of God. That forgiveness is extended to all who repent and believe. That it's not limited by nationality or the nature of a person's sin. And we also have Ruth in here. Ruth, well, you know, she was a Moabite. She was from Moab. And though Moab was a thorn in Israel's side, God chose the Moabitess Ruth to display his love and his kindness to Naomi. Now, if you feel like I'm picking on the women here, the men were far from perfect in this genealogy as well. If you look at just some of these men, we've already spoken about Judah, the one who willingly received Tamar thinking she was a prostitute. What about, one of the great, what about the greatest king of Israel in David? David seduced Bathsheba. David arranged for the murder of her husband. And what about Manasseh, the great idolater among the kings of Judah? He is also in that genealogy. What do we know? Many of these people were messy people. Better said, they were sinners. Do you remember what kind of people Jesus came to save? Jesus came to save sinners. The book of Ruth shows that God is working behind the scenes as concerned not only for the welfare of one family, of Naomi and Ruth, but for the welfare of all God's people who would be blessed by Jesus Christ. Beloved, listen, for the Christian, no matter how dark circumstances are now, our future is bright because of Christ. And as God provided Ruth, a redeemer in Boaz, and God provided Naomi, a redeemer in Obed, God provided the greatest redeemer to all who would believe in him, Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer, behind the human Redeemer in Ruth and Naomi's story. He is also the Redeemer behind each of our own personal salvation stories. He is the one that came to seek and to save that which is lost, which means he sought us while we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually blind. And just like Ruth's story turned out to be part of a much bigger narrative than she ever imagined. Your story, my story, also are part of a much bigger narrative about what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Chris read it to us earlier. The truths of what have happened through Christ, that he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms, exalted us among 
along with him to the glories of heaven. He's made us co-heirs with him and blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It is in him that we have been given this glorious genealogy that we are children of God. Stop and pause on that, beloved. We are children of God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Redeemer. Maybe you're aware of your sin and that you need a Savior, that you need forgiveness. My friend, the first thing I would tell you is that your sin is not so deep where God's grace cannot reach. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners just like you. Sinners that the Bible says were engaged in all sorts of sin. Those who were guilty of sexual immorality. Those who were guilty of idolatry. Those who were guilty of adultery. Those who were guilty of homosexuality. Those who were guilty of being thieves. Of being greedy. Of being drunkards. Of being revilers. Of being swindlers. And other things like these. The Bible says such were some of us. Such were some of us. But his grace delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My friend, you too can have forgiveness of sins. You too can be redeemed Everything that we've learned in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is meant to point us to Jesus. He is our greatest redeemer. The Bible says that by spilling his blood upon the cross, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Bible also declares that this Jesus, that he bore our sins in his body on that cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that by his wounds you have been healed. If you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, now is the time. It is not tomorrow. If the Spirit of God would make you aware that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, then there is a Savior, a Redeemer, and His name is Jesus. Turn to Him now. He is the one that came to give His life as a ransom for many. He is your Redeemer. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. Turn to Him and receive His loyal love and His faithful kindness. Father, we are in awe of your loyal love, of your faithful kindness. Father, we ask that you forgive us for the times that we trust in our feelings instead of your unchanging truth. Father, you are always faithful, always working for the good of your people, always accomplishing your perfect will. Thank you that you are providentially working in each of our lives and corporately in the life of our church. We thank you for our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. To him be all honor and glory now and forever.